I would say technology is the means by which humans adapt our environments to meet our needs and wants. So those means could be physical technologies, digital, biological technologies. They could even be social technologies if you want to think about things like legal systems, right? Mm -hmm. The environments can be our natural environment, but they can also be our social environment, our political environment. And so if you go back to Marshall McLuhan is often credited with saying, um, you know, we shape our tools and our tools shape us. You can just replace technologies and we shape our technologies and our technologies shape us. We've been co-evolving with our technology since the beginning of humanity. You are listening to the Humanity in the Loop podcast. Welcome to the Humanity in the Loop podcast. I'm your host, Tim Hampton. My guest today is Mark Abbott. Never in human history has technological change caused such a fundamental shift in the world's systems. The speed, scope, and complexity of this change is opening previously unimaginable risks and opportunities. This is the call to action of the Engineering Change Lab, where Mark is director. Mark also leads tech stewardship at the Mars Discovery District, an organization that aims to identify and promote ways to imagine, design, and implement technology intentionally for positive impact. Mark, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. My pleasure. So Mark, you are a professional engineer. What drew you to that field? Yeah, it's um, interesting. I was, I was talking about this just the other day with a friend and um, Oddly, I kind of went into engineering without knowing a lot about what engineering was. I, uh, you know, in high school, I've been math and science. And so the counselors say, oh, have you thought about engineering? What's engineering? And, um, uh, you know, at the time I kind of had this sense of, well, here's create things and build things. And that was appealing to me and it was challenging. And, you know, at the time as a, as a teenager, you know, I probably over hubris, I was like, yeah, I can, I want something hard and, and challenging. So I dove into engineering education, um, did my undergraduate at UBC in mechanical engineering. And um, yeah, in hindsight, kind of got into the program and you're focusing on passing the math exam or doing the design project and kind of had my head down, just sort of clearing the hurdles and um, and never really sort of kind of stopped to think about, you know, answer that question I had at the beginning, like, well, what is engineering anyway? It just kind of became what it was ever in, what uh, was in front of me. Well, that's interesting because you went on to have a successful career in a heavy industrial consulting engineering firm for many years. But since then, you have led or contributed to efforts that are shaping the way engineering and technology gets deployed. What provoked that shift? Yeah, so straight out of school, I went into um, consulting engineering and a pretty, um, I'd say, uh, typical engineering path if there is such a thing. Like one of the things that, that drew me to engineering was, you know, you, there are so many different things you could do with it. That being said, you know, I think a lot of people in Canada wind up on a, a lot of engineers in Canada um, follow like that consulting engineering path where, you know, when I came out of school, I joined a company, it was about 30 people, started out with the sort of design engineering, you get into project engineering, project management, um, did an MBA along the, the way, part-time, shifted more into the business work. So I had a almost 15 year first career in consulting engineering. And it was kind of a continuation of, of the education in that it was always just like kind of head down, what's the next project, you know, move, 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 fast um, going. And during that time, things would come up that would kind of, you know, I have a question about whether or not we should take this job or some some issue on a certain project. But there was never time to stop. And when we did, when we did try to stop and bring it up, we didn't have language for it. So it felt kind of lonely almost, sort of trying to, uh, like, there's these things in the back of my mind, these things that are bothering me, but you know, um, felt lonely and kind of isolated in terms of doing anything with it. Um, about 10 years into that first 15 years, 
I wound up connecting with um, uh, the Vancouver professional chapter of Engineers Without Borders, the national nonprofit. And um, all of a sudden, there was this group of people that were asking these bigger questions that had always been inside of me. It's like, wait a minute, you know, what's the world you want to see? And how does your world re work relate to that? And so I went from kind of dipping a toe in to like at the end of sort of five years of volunteering with them, the, at the end of my 15 year sort of first career, I was spending more time on the, the volunteer work with Engineers Without Borders than the high paid cushy leadership role in this consulting firm. Um, and so that became kind of like a, uh, you know, finally I couldn't ignore that anymore. So in 2011, I, I moved from Vancouver to Toronto to join the executive team of um, Engineers Without Borders. So there's a couple of themes. That, one in particular is this idea of being heads down. Now, I never practiced as, as an engineer. Uh, I did train as an engineer. I have an engineering degree. And you would think I knew what I was getting into because the reason I got into it was my father was an engineer. Yeah. Um, but it turned out to be much more math, I think, than I anticipated. Ah, yes, but all. I, I got through, uh, but it was a tough slog. But this idea of being heads down, uh, there at least at the time, and I think you are you're younger than I am, but we're roughly contemporary. It was very much engineering is is the best field on earth. It's the only important field on earth, and we the idea of civic mindedness just didn't show up in the textbooks. Right. And a perfect example of that was the the class president that we had the, I remember one year we had a class president vote and it was the, the person who won had voted for themselves. Ah. And that was it. Like <laughs> there was so little civic mindedness that we didn't even show up to vote for our class president. And so this, this, this theme that you're bringing up, which is as much that we need to lift our heads from our, from our drafting tables, so to speak, uh, definitely resonates. Um, and, so at this point, you are leading two efforts. One is called the Engineering Change Lab, and the other is called Tech Stewardship. How do the scope of these two differ? Yeah, and maybe to, to answer that, I'll go back even further in the roots. So um, Engineers Without Borders was started back in 2000 by um, uh, George Roder and Parker Mitchell, who are about basically exactly my age. They were University of Waterloo graduates. And building on what you were saying, like when they first brought engineers without borders into the world, it was, it was, they kind of caught like a, caught the wind. It was like before engineers without borders, the idea of engineers kind of having more of that civic minded, like, you know, working in international development and everything's wasn't really a thing in the same way. And, um, also back in 2000, the idea of sort of student led kind of initiatives that were really kind of doing progressive work was also, um, not as prevalent. And so the early days of Engineers Without Borders, there was this really kind of big push um, where chapters popped up at all the different engineering schools across the country. And there was this real kind of um, amazing kind of community of student leaders and then eventually kind of, you know, young professionals kind of infusing engineering um, across across Canada. And it was part of an even you know, larger global movement. So that's what I kind of caught up with in around uh, what would have been like two, 2006, 2007. So I've been going for a while. And, I, and, and so I was one of those people where there was always in me. And finally, there was this kind of, you know, a community around that to engage with. And so when I joined the executive team, when I went from being a volunteer to join the executive team in around 2011, um, one of the mandates of Engineers Without Borders had always been, you know, there was the overseas kind of international development sort of side, but there was also the sort of reform and of evolution of engineering itself was always, you know, part and parcel of it. And so after spending a few years on the executive team at Engineers Without Borders, 
Um, and we've done a lot of really interesting work in um, what was called global engineering and other kind of you know more civic-minded kind of engineering modes. And we got to this point in around um, 2014 when we were sort of saying, okay, you know, engineers, well, Borders itself has done a lot to kind of, you know, change this sort of civic-minded kind of focus of engineering, bring kind of a new, new ethos in engineering. But kind of what's next? Like it feels like we're, it still feels like there's a lot of kind of next potential. And the stars kind of aligned back around 2014, 2015, where we were feeling like, okay, there's lots of great initiatives going on around engineering and engineering reform, but they, they sometimes feel a little bit stuck. It's like we've been talking about equity, diversity, and inclusion for like you know, 20, 30 years in engineering. We've been talking about connecting engineers to big grand challenges in the SDGs. We've been talking about curriculum reform. And the sense was that it was almost like all these initiatives were working on pieces of a puzzle without the box cover that sort of told the larger story of how it all connected. And so the stars kind of aligned in 2014, 2015, where there was enough leaders, not just from Engineers Without Borders, but other key organizations that were sort of feeling like we needed to try something different. And so Engineers Without Borders and Engineers Canada wound up co-convening the Engineering Change Lab. And we followed a social labs methodology, which is about, you know, a way of actually bringing about larger systems change. So, you know, systems change, like there's, like most of the world's big problems are bigger than any one organization. Even if it's the federal government, they can't be solved or even perceived, you know, in kind of silos of individual organizations. So social labs is a way of sort of, you know, collaborating across silos to work at a sort of more systemic level. So we applied the social labs methodology to the future of engineering. And tangibly, what that looked like is we went out to convene a microcosm of engineering in Canada. So we um, were looking at sort of leaders from academia, industry, government, uh, professional associations, nonprofits, VPs, CEOs, directors, deans. And uh, we launched the Engineering Change Lab in January of uh, 2015 with 40 leaders from 40 organizations sitting in a circle in a conference room in Montreal. And that story continues to unfold. Eight plus years later, we've morphed and changed. We've had hundreds of leaders and hundreds of organizations involved in the core work over the years. And then it sort of impacted thousands more. But that was sort of the um, the impetus of the, uh, our, or the, the launch of the Engineering Change Lab. Um, what emerged over time, like, you know what I was talking about, sort of like the, the pieces of the puzzle in the box cover. So we started out working on the pieces of the puzzle collaboratively. And what we sort of realized was the box cover was um, this realization that the strengths of engineering have become its weaknesses. Like, hey, we're practical problem solvers. We don't have time for all that philosophical crap about who we are and our place in the world. Just give us your problem. Let's get to work. Right. Um, that's a strength until you overdo it to, this, to the extent that the modern engineering profession has, where, um, you know, even if you ask like deans of a lot of engineering schools or, or, or CEOs of engineering companies, what is engineering? You tend to actually get pretty unsatisfactory answers. Like in practice, somehow like the further you are from, you know, doing calculations by yourself in the dark room, somehow the less it's real engineering, you know? And so we have this kind of almost like, um, almost sort of felt understanding of what is real engineering without ever really interrogating it. In promotion, you get what I used to say in Engineers Without Borders when people said, well, where's the engineering in Engineers Without Borders? Well, engineering is a mindset. Engineers are problem solvers. That's true, but you could really say that about any profession or discipline. They have different mindsets that are sort of bespoke to different types of problems and challenges. What's unique, I think, about engineering relative to other disciplines and professions is the degree to which engineers are unaware, unself-aware about 
the nature of the problems and the nature of the mindset that we've been um, sort of um, that we've developed as engineers or, or been sort of um, supported to develop. So a couple of things jump out from that too. And that is, um, you know, you were talking about engineers without borders. Not only are, does that imply an international interest, but it's also a, a way of announcing you're unconstrained yourselves, right? Yeah. That, that, that is probably, uh, it sounds to me like what you're saying is that engineering uh, shouldn't have limits in terms of connecting with other disciplines, but also embracing other disciplines in tech, yeah. right? Because what you, well, I, I, I'm old enough to remember when uh, I have a certified Novell engineer uh, cert certification, and I remember when actual engineers, and I had just graduated from being an actual engineer, uh, bristled at the use of that term. You know, yeah. it was like, no, we're engineers and you're not. Yeah. And so it's interesting that you're, the, by lifting the, the, the borders, in a sense, you are embracing all kinds of tech. Yeah. And the way that we lifted that border was like the basic re-realization, like the, the root question, what is engineering? And you get like lots of really pedantic answers or unsatisfactory answers. At a fundamental level, what we came to is engineering is the process of creating technology. Mm -hmm. Okay. If that's engineering, what's technology? Mm -hmm. the, the nice thing about reestablishing that link is engineering overall is very siloed. You know, um, when I was working in engineering consulting, you know, it was all engineers. And when I finally did my MBA, it was kind of, you know, um, realizing that the biggest problem with our engineering consulting firm wasn't that we, you know, the level of engineering, it was that it was a bunch of engineers doing business without realizing what they didn't know about business. Right. Right. So there's almost a little bit of a, like an arrogance sometimes and like, oh yeah, we can figure out marketing, we can figure out operations. And so for me, my awakening about, you know, how much I'd been trained to think in a very particular way came like, you know, eight, 10 years into my career when I was doing an executive MBA with a bunch of people who weren't engineers who had been trained to think in different ways and everything. Um, and so, but more broadly speaking, I think what keeps engineering in its silo, like if there's a conference on the future of engineering, it's going to be engineers talking to other engineers about the importance of engineering. And if only we had more engineers in, in, um, in decision-making, if only there were more engineer politicians, it's, it's such a siloed conversation. When you reconnect engineering to technology in this fundamental way, it connects engineering into this larger story of technology and society. And that's a story that everyone finds their place in, as they should, right? Like when we go to the movies or when we read like stories of the future, um, they're almost always directly or indirectly cautionary tales like, about getting our relationship with technology wrong. So, you know, The Matrix, Wally, Black Mirror on Netflix is a whole anthology of near future sort of failures of tech innovation, right? And so, um, you know, reconnecting engineering to technology kind of breaks down that, those silos. And one of the consequences of the silos is we don't get a lot of critical friendship from outside. So, you know, when, when a bridge falls down, it's like, okay, we're, you know, engineering will get scrutinized. When Facebook does the Cambridge Analytica scandal, no one talks about engineering anymore because is that engineering? I'm not sure. And, you know, I think people on the outside don't criticize engineering because they're not confident enough about what engineering is and isn't to make a criticism. What they don't realize is that people within engineering aren't confident enough about what engineering is and isn't. So we get this kind of state where engineering, there's a scenario in the future where engineering becomes first and second industrial revolution, physical technologies with micro ethical sort of like, you know, bridge falls down kind of problems while a new technology becomes computer science or some sort of unofficial engineering and all of the really kind of macro ethical issues around privacy and, 
and you know all the things around generative AI somehow separate into this new world. And I'd say that's actually in a way almost where the default seems to be going right now, where a lot of our institutions of engineering seem to be sort of stuck. Sometimes you could argue not even the second industrial revolution. It's like back to the first industrial revolution where it's like an engineer stamping a drawing so a bridge doesn't fall down. Those are not the biggest um, risks and challenges around modern engineering if you take engineering in that bigger sense as the process of creating technology. So uh, again, coming back to uh, the experience I had in engineering, there was definitely even snobbery between different, different disciplines within engineering, let, yeah. alone, let alone hanging out with the nursing crew or the, yeah. the architecture crew. Heavens, no, right? Yeah. I'm like, my, my, um, my, my favorite metaphor, one of my favorite metaphors is the peanut butter cup, right? For, for you know, it, it's a fusion of peanut butter. And, oh right, yeah, yeah. And it's two different disciplines coming together to 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 find a way that's really productive. Totally. You still need people who are working on making good chocolate, and you still need people who are working yeah. on making good peanut butter. But there has to be some an opportunity for that connection to be right. Yeah. It sounds like it sounds like that's one of the themes that comes from your work. And what and what um, makes those connections work at scale? is people's self-awareness of what they're bringing to the table and what others are bringing to the table, right? So if, if we wanted to be critical, if I wanted to be critical of the modern engineering profession, um, and, not, and I, let's say engineering community broadly, because um, I would say engineering, computer science, certain like hard sciences, technologists, um, there's a lot of kind of messiness around like what is science and what is engineering and everything too. So if we're talking broadly about the fields that create and scale um, technology, so engineering, computer science, um, business scaling a lot of the technologies. We tend to train those people on one side of campus um, to, to create and scale technology. Somewhere on the other side of campus, we're training a different group of students to think critically about the nature of technology and its um, impacts on society in philosophy of technology, science technology studies, critical media studies. And, um, and those groups rarely meet. And when they do, not only are they speaking a different language, they have a different kind of culture. Like I went into engineering because I want to get stuff done and you philosophers just want to talk about stuff. I don't have time for you, right? Stop it. Right. And so the peanut butter and the chocolate stay separate, okay. right? And so if you wanted to be critical of the engineering community, broadly speaking, it's kind of set up to turn out Dr. Frankenstein's right now. So in Mary Shelley's uh, a classic book, you know, Dr. Frankenstein was the doctor, not the monster. So the doctor had the ability to create something, in this case, technology, that he didn't adequately understand the nature of or have the ability to steward responsibly. So you get this thing in engineering where it's like, well, I'm a good person. I have good intentions, you know, and I've been told I have a magical mindset that can solve problems. So if I, as long as I like care about climate change, like go in that direction, then that I'm doing my part. And it's sort of almost like a, like a, a super narrow way of thinking about ethics. Like that would be eviscerated by, you know, anyone with kind of any social science ethics background, like good intentions are not enough. In fact, more problems and like, and so you hear a lot in engineering, it's like, well, I'm good and we have to guard against those bad actors over there. At, you know, at an aggregate level, more problems have been created by naive techno-optimists, the type of naive techno-optimists that we turn out by default from engineering that have been created by bad actors just because there are so many more naive techno-optimists than there are bad actors out there. So um, let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, I think you and I have, have shared this, this uh, sort of meme uh, Jeff Goldblum is often quoted from for this line from the movie Jurassic Park. Your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. 
That's the worst uh, Jeff Goldblum impression I'll ever hear. Um, but what are some real life examples of this dynamic at play? Like you're talking about technology run amok that people didn't think about the consequences. What are what are some examples? Yeah, I mean, the huge one that's on everyone's mind right now is obviously generative AI and chat GPT. And people will argue that we've just launched the largest, you know, social experiment ever, you know, at scale, right? With the number of people are using it. Um, Jeffrey Hinton, the, the one of the, I guess they call him a godfather of AI, um, you know, uh, was recently speaking at Collision, the, the conference in Toronto. And he made the point that for every 99 smart people that are working on like scaling, you know, and, and, and using um, generative AI, there's one smart person talking about how to make sure it doesn't, you know, <laughs> uh, have us wind up in a Black Mirror episode. I'll use that as a, as a short ad, right? And so um, this concept of... Uh, you know, um, well, I guess reversing for a second, because I'll, I'll talk about the genesis of tech stewardship, because that brings us into this can we do it, should we do it dynamic you're talking about. So when we were kind of coming out of the engineering silo as the engineering change lab, you know, a few years into it, it was around 2018, the time of um, the first Facebook Cambridge Analytica scandal, remember around kind of voting and, um, and that in hindsight almost feels like one of these kind of seminal moments that sort of was a bit of an awakening. So we use the metaphor to the environmental movement. So the 1960s is when society broadly started to wake up to the nature of our relationship with nature and the environmental movement continues to unfold. So the beginning of that was actually an awareness of the scope of the problem of, you know, and we think that now starting with like kind of Cambridge Analytica, now with like the gener release of generative AI, there's these kind of seminal moments, just like there were in the environmental movement, the blue the blue marble, like Rachel Carson, Silent Spring, we're seeing these new seminal moments that are marking the awakening of society to the nature of our relationship with technology. Mm. And so we think it's kind of like, you know, it's a 1960s moment. So there's some people that are seeing it are kind of early, but in general public, it's kind of like, well, what, what are you talking about, right? Imagine you were 1960s, you're trying to talk to people about the environment. Envi like, why is environmental sustainability an issue? Because the technologies we've developed as a species over time have, have um, so at a fundamental sense, I would say technology is the means by which humans adapt our environments to meet our needs and wants. So those means could be physical technologies, digital, biological technologies. They could even be social technologies if you want to think about things like legal systems, right? Mm -hmm. The environments can be our natural environment, but they could also be our social environment, our political environment. And so if you go back to Marshall McLuhan is often credited with saying, um, you know, we shape our tools and our tools shape us. You can just replace technologies and we shape our technologies and our technologies shape us. We've been co-evolving with our technology since the beginning of humanity. Social scientists have pointed out that when humans started using fire to pre-digest our food, over centuries, we actually evolved less strong jaws. So even our physical evolution has been entwined with our technological evolution. But it's been happening at such a slow pace and in such a diffuse way that it hasn't been apparent. What's changed more recently because of the power and pace of technological development is it's becoming more apparent. What's always been true is the nature of this intricate co-evolution. And so, um, you know, things like generative AI, the latest digital technologies tend to kind of shine the biggest light on it. But it's also true of, you know, fire and like and the earliest technologies. Right. And so. The degree to which we become more intentional in shaping that co-evolution will, you know, determine do we wind up in like a Star Trek next generation kind of positive, you know, technological future or in one of these many like dystopian kind of tech future scenarios. Yeah, like a Blade Runner.
Yeah, exactly. You used the word lonely earlier on, that there can be a loneliness uh, from feeling like you're the only person wrestling with these issues in, a, in, in, a, in an industry or a profession that doesn't necessarily think very much about it. There's a quote from the Tech Stewardship website, too often our work conflicts with our values, and too often we feel isolated and powerless to change that dynamic. Uh, what role does tech stewardship, the organization, play in uniting people with that sensation? Yeah, so like, you know, as we were coming into this bigger tech and society conversation in this 1960s moment and, and seeing this gap, we started prototyping this concept of tech stewardship in response because we didn't find it when we came out of the silo, we had to create it. And so tech stewardship as a mindset, as, a, as an identity, as a practice, and um, so we're kind of creating almost like a frame for that identity and for that practice, right? And we have now some programming, like some early programming that we're evolving to help people launch that practice to develop that identity. And at the heart of it are three core commitments. The first is to advance understanding about the nature of technology and kind of disabuse dangerously limited um, narratives and stereotypes. So, you, you know, that, um, that point I was talking about before where we're turning out Dr. Frankenstein's, it's like, all right, let's make sure that everyone that's that we're that we're um, supporting to, to have the ability to create technology also understands the nature of that technology, not at a technical level, like that's already happening, but at a, like an impact level, like what is, you know, and so one of the common misconceptions is that technology is neutral. When in fact, you know, I would argue that, that our values shape and are shaped by technology, which leads to the second core commitment of tech stewardship, which is to deliberate values, to understand like, what are my values? What are the values of others? What are those intentions? So a very common value tension that we use to bring people into that is um, cell phones, right? Like we all struggle, we all value convenience, we all value privacy, and we probably feel tension when we're using our cell phones around that, you know, around those different values being kind of conflict. And, you know, and of course the way systems have been set up have kind of leaned that in a certain direction. In general, all of the innovation around cell phones to date has kind of gotten us to give up privacy in favor of convenience, right? But does it need to be that way? If we if we understand that's what's happening, can we find more opportunities where there's a, a both end, where you get the both best of convenience and privacy without having to trade one off against the other? You mentioned before, like the meta tension we see in technology, the value tension is between that can we do it, should we do it mindset from that we drew from Jurassic Park, right? And so you get can we do it, uh, like I think we all have can we do it and should we do it inside us, um, but you get sort of in different settings more of a leaning one way or the other engineering, business, you know, innovation hubs tend to be very, can we do it? And shouldn't be like, that's a, you know, there's lots of great things about a, can we do it mindset? Um, the problem is when you only focus on, can we do it to the exclusion of, should we do it is when you get the really negative consequences and, you know, getting eaten by dinosaurs or whatever the, you know, and then, but conversely, there are, um, communities and groups that have more of the, should we do it leaning? Like, you know, in general, the social sciences, government, nonprofits, and, you know, social and should we do it thinking has lots of power too about ensuring, you know, broad benefits, taking more of a long-term systemic look. But if you overdo should we do it to the exclusion of can we do it, you get analysis paralysis and all these problems. So what we're saying with tech stewardship is we need the best of both can we do it and should we do it coming together. We need, you know, so we need to break down that silo between the engineering and the philosophy department. We need to and, and sort of recognize that the peanut butter and the chocolate have to come together in order to get this, you know, the future that we really want to see. And so the third core commitment, so advancing understanding, deliberate values, and then the actual practice of the behaviors um, is sort of where the rubber hits the road. And that's where, to your lonely comment, 
the essence of TechSurge, if we create that frame, but the real essence of it is connecting people so that they can work through those those day-to-day, like, you know, um, in my context, um, you know, where is that opportunity for me to help bend the arc? Because I think the bottleneck in my mind is not people caring about these issues. I think people care about equity and climate change and all these things. And it's not even that they don't have tools in their toolkit to do something about it. There's lots of, you know, different toolkits out there and lots of capacity. The bottleneck is people not being able to find opportunities in their day job or their, or their day-to-day life where they feel like they have, you know, utility to actually do something about it. And so that's where that third core commitment of like, how do we find those opportunities day-to-day and how do we connect people so they can support each other to find those day-to-day opportunities? So there's a couple of flies in the ointment uh, when taking that viewpoint that I'm sure you've thought of. Um, the first is that uh, innovation involves risk. Right. You have to be experimental. And sure. Uh, how do we balance uh, a tendency to say do no harm versus let's try things and see how they go? How does yeah, so which address that? So the essence of tech stewardship um, practice is being able to notice the tensions around technology that are around us, name them, reflect on them, and then take action within them. Um, so we have the meta, can we do it, should we do it tension, but we kind of, as we introduce people to tech stewardship, we kind of peel the onion a little bit so that you get some more of these sort of like typical tensions that you, that by knowing what the typical tensions are, it's easier to spot them day to day. And so there's four behaviors of tech stewardship that all have tensions around them. So as tech stewards, we seek purpose, we take responsibility, we expand inclusion, and we work to regenerate. So the tension that you're hitting there a lot is around um, take responsibility. So if you think about sort of within take responsibility, if I'm more of a can we do it learning person, right? Um, I'm going to value more action, right? It's like, hey, if I have the ability to make something better, it'd be irresponsible of me not to do it as quickly as possible, which is not wrong until you overdo that type of thinking to the exclusion of should we do it thinking. Now, on the should we do it side of sort of take responsibility, there's more this like valuing of reflection. And so someone with a should we do it leaning might say, okay, well, if I'm going to help bring this like powerful technology into the world that's going to have all these impacts, I better make sure I've thought through all what all those impacts are before we do anything. It's called the precautionary principle, which is not wrong until you overdo it in the wrong context. And so context is really important here, right? If you're if you're talking about, you know, that sort of action, reflection, leaning, and, you know, and the, the consequences, the potential risks are relatively low, then the leaning might be in one direction, but if they're relatively high, so it's not a, it's not a simple um, one-time, you know, answer. It's an ongoing practice of knowing, of reflecting of the situations you're in and they wait a minute. Are we, are we leaning too far towards, you know, action here and not reflecting enough, or are we leaning too far the other way and, you know, and, and building that individual and kind of group awareness of where we are in that. I would say with generative AI, like the big topic on everyone's mind right now, the overall sort of sense is that we've, we've leaned a little bit too far towards action. And now there's like a lot of sort of concern about, wait a minute, you know, but the, the horse is kind of like, you know, leaving the barn as we speak. Right. Yeah. So you're making me think, um, and I don't know if I'm using this term correctly, but satisficing the art of trying the art of trying to find a solution that satisfies multiple metrics. Right. And when you talk about engineers being problem solvers, really what you're doing in a way is inviting people to identify other problems or potential yeah. problems to bring to the engineer's attention. To say it's not just whether it's not just whether the car can make it from Boston to Chicago in one piece. And it's also, it's also, have you thought about the risk to the people, other people on the road? 
Yeah. And this is where um, uh, the sort of deeper philosophy of tech stewardship and that connects it, I think, to even larger themes. When we were developing tech stewardship, we were talking about like, you know, tech stewardship is, is sort of this practice that helps ensure technology is beneficial for all. And we debated a lot, beneficial for all. Mm-hmm. What does that even mean, right? And then all, is yeah. there, yeah, who is all? And, and so it was meant, beneficial for all is meant more as like a nor- North Star. Like you never achieve benefit for all, but it's important to always be tracking towards it. Like considering who the all is, considering what benefit is, right? And even the term problem. So we, we partnered with a group called Polarity Partnerships and we introduced people into a methodology of mapping out value tensions. And what polarity partnerships and that whole methodology sort of says is a lot of like the biggest intractable problems in the world are intractable not be- is because they're not problems. They're actually value tensions to be managed, not problems with solutions. Yeah. And so the can we do it, should we do it? It's not a can we do it or should we do it? It's a both. The convenience and privacy, it's not an either or, it's both. And it's how you navigate that in sort of a dynamic way that's actually more important. And so um, uh, this... There's actually, coming back to engineering, there's actually a documented phenomenon called the myth of rationality in engineering. There's a great Harvard Business Review article um, that's um, titled, uh, how the, um, how the, uh, uh, what's it? How the um, uh, rationality of engineering is, is hurting um, engineering and diver- or diversity and engineering itself. And it talks about this research researcher named Aaron Sack, Nick Porter work in this article about um, documenting this phenomenon of the myth of rationality in engineering. And the observation is that it's not an intentional indoctrination. It's more something that seeps into the engineering journey where there's this belief that there's always a rational right decision. And if you just, you know, it's almost like part of that kind of, you know, engineers are awkward, right? It's like, well, because we don't get all kind of caught up in that human emotion, just give us, you know, we're, we're more rational. Just give us the data and we'll tell you the rational right answer. But What's being missed in that is like what that actually means is the dominant values of engineering are taken as the right answer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so tech stewardship is actually about understanding like different people value different things and actually, um, you know, better engineering, better technology does a better job of finding the both ends between those different kind of solutions rather than sort of defaulting to engineering dominant values. Our physical, digital, biological worlds, like the places with sort of artifact-based technology, have been shaped with a dominant set of values, of engineering values, that have been sort of privileged and propagated in the world in a very powerful way. Some people talk about, like, if you compare it to, like, politics, right? In, in political world and governance, right, we sort of accept that we all, you know, every citizen has a vote. And yeah, there's politicians and policymakers and people who play particular roles, but these decisions are too important and they need, need to be made democratically. You could argue that technology has a different but potentially even greater impact on our lives, the way our sort of physical, digital, biological um, worlds are shaped. And yet there's no sense of democratic participation. There's a small group of, of you know, ed, a small engineering community that has a dominant set of values that's shaping that technological world without even realizing the power they're wielding or the fact that, they're, that we're embedding and, and privileging our own values to the exclusion of others. So I want to pick up on that theme because to me, it sounds like one of the reactions to that is regulation. So I want to get to that. But I also want to give you the other fly in the ointment that that strikes me. And and you know I'm a fan. I didn't call the podcast yeah. Humanity in the Loop yeah. without, <laughs> without, without thinking that this is the right approach to take. However, it it um, 
it does create the risk of putting individuals or individual firms at a competitive disadvantage. So human-centered design is promoted as a creative approach to problem solving that begins with the final user and ends with innovative yeah. solutions. This is a craze. I, I've actually been a big fan of design thinking because you know every every sort of mindset or 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 philosophy or process is a reaction to a problem. And the yeah. problem was when you gave somebody uh, a, an assignment, they would go back to their cubicle and solve it without yeah. consulting with the people who are affected by it. Sure. The thing is that that primacy of the end user, which is great for a company that wants to make money selling things, it it is a, a pressure that uh, on the system and creates these lonely people who wish they could look up from their from their desk and say, "How can I make this work for a better world?" What do you say to people who are concerned that if they take this viewpoint and if they adopt the the mindset of tech stewardship, there's going to be a company that doesn't that succeeds yeah. against them? Yeah, you're you're um, you're describing the headwind, right? I think that underlying belief is is the thing that holds back progress overall, right? And, um, you know, when we talk about can we do it, should we do it? Like, can we do it tends to be, you know, um, utilize resources, like draw them down to to create benefit for your focus stakeholder, your customer, your client, you know, whether it's like best practices in business, like be obsessed with your customer, right? Or whether it's human-centered design, you know, there's strength in all of those. Like, this is, this is the thing that makes it subtle, right? Like, that's a powerful way of thinking until you overdo it to the exclusion of the should we do it sort of thinking in that context, right? And so, and people will look at certain models like Facebook, right? It's like, obviously Facebook has kind of exploited sort of like a, you know, in a sort of privacy sort of convenience or, you know, like why have we allowed Facebook to cause these problems in the world, right? Because it's adding a huge amount of value. Like we're basically saying all of the things that it's given us are worth all of this pain, right? It's worth and the it's made, videos. Right. And it's made, and it's made billionaires and all of this sort of stuff, right? And and you can slip back into that. Well, if consumers are paying for it, they must value it kind of, you know, even if it's bad for them, right? But there's few businesses that sort of um, have slipped that accountability knot where they've like exploited a value tension like that and and then made, you know, billionaires and everything, right? Most like most startups, most organizations will get kind of hit on the rocks of that much earlier, right? Like you look at with generative AI, the biggest challenges coming up right now are not technical. They're there are questions around the socio-technical and like the social license to operate, right? So I think the paradigm, the underlying paradigm shift that needs to flip to really kind of change this is that ignoring those tensions is not better business, it's worse business, right? Like it's actually the organizations that are ahead of these stewardship concerns and understanding those dynamics and making wise choices are better organizations. There's an analogy here to the, um, the health and safety movement. So, you know, I worked in heavy industry for a long time, but you can also look at sort of general construction if you went back 50 years and you know it spoke to the average person on a construction site, like what about health and safety? Probably you would have heard something like, well, you know, we try to be safe, but it's a business and things happen, right? Like that was the accepted mindset, right? And that's what people thought was, you know, good business back then, right? A lot of things changed over time because now if you go to like an average sort of construction site in North America or, you know, most places in the world where, you know, what about health and safety? Health and safety is number one. It's like tattooed into people's minds, right? Now, a lot of things changed, regulation, other things, but I would argue the fundamental thing that changed was the realization that it wasn't an either or, that a, a safely run organization is actually a better run organization, a more profitable organization. Um, you know, And so when that tips, all of a sudden, all the weight of industry and all the weight of 
all those resources go into figuring out how to do health and safety well. And you get really sophisticated takes on health and safety where it's, you know, it's it's not just, you know, we need to put it in a handrail, we need to put it in a, you know, a fail safe in our software. They realize that actually to really do health and safety well, you have to invest in the health and safety culture is your actual asset. So you get super sophisticated investment in health and safety because of the paradigm shift. And what you just described is I think the reason is the underlying faulty belief right now that limits investments in, in essentially tech stewardship is this is this erroneous belief that ignoring these value tensions are related to technology is it going to allow you to to do better um, or even move faster because I would say that it might seem faster but it's actually not um, to ignore these things uh, and not be ahead of them. So a couple of the themes there that, that draw to mind the Toyota production system, it it more than the North American uh, automotive industry, they were interested in avoiding scrap, waste, right? right? That, that, well, that's just a cost of doing business. Well, no, it isn't. You need to reduce that because you're actually better off as a business. Now, the people getting injured yeah. is bad for business. And, yeah. and, and you know, the, 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 if you have that kind of, uh, if you have people getting injured, it means your system is not running right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and so you have this lean production, and and so you're right. There there are opportunity. There are occasions when the stars align, and it's not only good for the individual; it's good for the company and for for uh, for yeah. uh, society. But I I wouldn't I wouldn't go so far as to say that's always true. Yeah. Uh, and that's where regulation comes in, because you were talking about how um, we we engage in behavior that isn't necessarily healthy for us on our phones because it's free. Yeah. Uh, well, we could have said the law is you you can't turn your customers into products that way. You have to charge yeah. it. it cool. You know, there 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 could could have been a reaction, and it's sort of like bad food, right? Yeah. Uh, depending on where you live, you and I live in a place that isn't great at this respect. Yeah, yeah. If we lived in Europe, there would be a lot of a lot more rules about well, you can't serve that to people. It's not real food. Yeah, yeah. Right? Uh, so regulate, and so this sort of brings to mind uh, the term externalities. Yeah. Um, which is sort of a, a fancy way of saying not my problem, yeah. and and the government saying, well, on behalf of the people, I'm saying it is your problem, and so yeah. this is another mechanism. And I'm just wondering where you sit in terms of the the organizations organizations you work with or or lead. Are they pressing for regulation? Is that one of the mechanisms you use? Yeah. So, yeah, I, absolutely. Everything you're describing, and it's it's a complex systems change that needs to happen at multiple levels, right? And so, there's each. I would argue each of us as individuals has utility in when it comes to shaping the future of technology as consumers, as voters. You know, again, the environmental movement kind of um, analogy, right? Like the blue box, and like the you know maybe the modern blue box in terms of environmental movement is. Our relationship with our screens, right? We all struggle with that in, in different ways, right? Um, but uh, but we don't exist in isolation. We work in organizations, and we you know, and the and broader societies with laws and everything, right? And the change has to happen at these multiple levels, right? Because you know, convenience and privacy. Like someone could argue that, hey, um, um, hey, you know, like you could make a decision. You cannot accept those terms and everything, right? But the truth of the matter is, the decisions companies have made and our regulators have made. Are, are putting, you know, massive liens on that in different directions, right? So the change has to happen at all different levels and all different sectors. I think it has to start with the, 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 us appreciating the nature of what's going on in the, in the best way. Like imagine the environmental movement, no matter, like if, if we'd gone down a path where 
it was just individual laws and kind of like random things. And there wasn't this larger sense of the issue, then, you know, like we, the response would have been wholly inadequate. And I think that's where we are with our sort of, you know, our thinking about technology right now, as we, we look at technologies in isolation, we look at them and think only about regulation where really the response needs to be like the, the scope of the problem, the scope of the challenge and opportunity is much larger. It needs to be individual behavior. It needs to be corporate culture. It needs to be, um, you know, the ethos of, of the community and of society. It needs to be regulation. It needs to be choices made in the design of that technology. It's like, it needs to kind of infuse everything. But the heart of it is actually realizing the nature of the whole challenge in the first place, because, mm-hmm. you know, like just like in the environmental movement, if we hadn't awoken to that, we'd still be merrily kind of sleepwalking our way to, you know, to destroying the environment. And if, if we don't awaken to the nature of our relationship to technology and the scope of what's required, we'll keep sleepwalking into a Black Mirror episode too, right? Okay. I love it. So this brings me to the last couple of questions. This has been terrific, Mark. Thank you so much. Um, the Oxford languages or Oxford languages rather defines activist as a person who campaigns to bring about political or social change. Do you see tech stewardship as a form of activism? You know, in a way, I think like, when I think about larger systems change, I think there's a role. It depends exactly what you mean by activism. You just defined it. But I think there's kind of a spectrum. I think that there's a need for um, kind of like the the heroic activist who's like, this system's broken and they're calling out that, you know, and it's just like, you know, protesting in the street. You need, I think you need that sort of thing to create cracks in systems where other things can grow, right? I personally, where I think a big bottleneck is actually a much more in the mess and middle. It's not like in the extremes of the debate. It's, I don't know, 99% of people in the world are kind of, you know, they've got competing values. Like they're, you know, they, they've got to get a paycheck and they got to take care of their family and they got to, and they care about climate change and all of those different things. Right. And I think like with stewardship, it's like more wherever you are in, in, you know, in various spectrums, what are your opportunities to bend that arc towards good? So I think that this idea of stewardship and we're developing tech stewardship. If you want to get even more philosophical, I think there's a level up where you drop tech and just say like system stewardship, like all of our societal systems. How do we become more aware of what those systems are and their impacts? How do we translate that into like our own behavioral decisions? And how do we actually kind of, you know, um, uh, sort of add that up to sort of larger shifts in how we're, we're designing our systems as a society or our, our technologies as a subset of that, right? And so, I don't know, I, I mean, I, I, words change, the meanings of change evolve over time, right? And that's one way I think actually to mark um, like system, like large change, large scale social change or systems change, I think can actually often be marked by how the meaning of certain words change. Mm-hmm. So what did engineer mean before? What does it mean now? What could it mean in the future? Technology, environment, activist, right? Um, I'd say at the moment, the dominant activist thing plays an important role, but is, is a little bit different than what we're talking about stewardship. I think you need them both and they're complementary. And, you know, part of what the role we're playing is to just get tech stewardship out in the world into the, into the ecosystem. You asked earlier if we were focusing on policy. Rather than focus directly on policy, we help policymakers build their tech stewardship practice. Rather than focus on activism, we would sort of help activists develop their tech stewardship world. And maybe some of them would reject it because it feels like a compromise because you're there's too much of a space for sort of, you know, looking at both sides of the values. Whereas, you know, some activists don't want that. They, they could sort of balance. They want to pull on one side of the rope to, to you know, to, to create those cracks. So it's, it's you know, um, 
I, at the moment, I would say stewardship is sort of filling in more of that gap that's kind of more towards activism picks up. But I don't know, my, my thinking on that could very well change over time too. No, I think that's a, that's a really good, because uh, when you talk about tension, what, what's a rope for? Right, yeah. so you're the rope between the, the activist and and that where where policy is being made or technology is being made. You're trying to draw the two interests together. So, when you know the um like the getting back into sort of the theory, like you know, the pedagogy of the oppressed and Paulo Coelho and that, right? It's like, um, you know, when you're in a situation like let's take individualistic and 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 um more communal societies, right? And you could take like extremes of sort of like free market, you know, capitalistic failures or like you know um communist kind of like you know extreme failures like if you're in one of those societies you see the downfalls of that kind of like of overdoing that kind of individualistic versus collective leaning in whichever one you're in right so the tendency is going to be really want to pull on the other side of the rope really hard right but ultimately i think we need to get out of tug of wars and into saying okay there's actually something you know there is value like we went down this road for a reason there is value here we've overdone it to the exclusion of the other value and we need now to transcend the tug of war as opposed to just, you know, you know, it's not about winning the tug of war the other way. It's about transcending the tug of war. And I think that's the deeper kind of philosophical root of, of stewardship or tech stewardship. So my final question is, how does one become a tech steward? Ah, so um, it's kind of this neat Canadian story where, you know, this, this thing called the Engineering Change Lab kind of, you know, came into this larger space. And, um, you know, we have... In a way, it almost feels like an eight-year head start on a current wave that's starting to build, especially now with generative AI. And so um, we went from sort of exploration to prototyping tech stewardship. In the last few years, we've been looking at how to get it out in the water system. And so we started building out some some central programming and some central ways to get involved. So at programs.techstewardship.com, um, you could actually find a, a practice program. It's a 12-hour asynchronous program that helps individuals launch their practice. Um, we also offer drop-in tech stewardship practice sessions where every week you can come for this half hour and sort of have a chance to connect with another person and talk through the challenges and um, tensions you're feeling in your work. Sort of the, you know, like remember what I was saying, I felt lonely in my old work. This is one of the ways to kind of solve that. So these are some of our uh, early initial offerings. And we've been partnering, you know, we've partnering with 30 um, post-secondary institutions in Canada that are either promoting some of this programming or embedding in their ethics classes or design classes or co-op programs. We're partnering, we're piloting with some professional associations, bringing tech stewardship into their certification and licensure processes. We're piloting with some companies, bringing it into their organization culture. So it's an individual offering that can also be used by change makers in their schools or companies or, or teams as well too. And so if you go onto programs.techstewardship.com, you'll see the current offerings. But the way to think of it is just as the current offerings, we're gonna add more things to help people launch and um, maintain their practice. And um, it's not being designed as an organization or as a trademark thing. It's more like we're just trying to get it out in the world. So um, the hope is that different change makers in different professions, sectors, working on different challenges, focusing on different technologies, will take this thing that happened to come from Canadian engineers. Like we built it for Canadian engineering, but now we've kind of open sourced it a level up so that people can actually change makers because, because we think it, you know, this is missing not just for engineering, but for society as a whole, we're structuring in a way that people can kind of take this open source code of tech stewardship and these programs and sort of run with it in their own worlds. That's kind of our, our longer term scaling. So that's a, both a bit of the longer term philosophy of it, but also, you know, 
it all starts with that individual, like with us individually starting to express those behaviors as the basic building block. And and um, yeah, the programs.texturechip.com is a way for you both to start with your individual behaviors. And if you're interested to start moving on to those other levels of changing your org or your communities as well. So thanks for that. And I'll make sure the link is in the show notes. Before I let you go, I did say that was the last question, but you, uh-huh. you've raised uh, on the website and in our conversation, the fact that this organize or you said it's not an organization, but uh, our tech stewardship is something that was initiated in Canada. Yeah. Uh, for my international listeners and viewers, I should point out that you and I are both in Canada. We're both yeah. in Toronto or near Toronto. Um, and I'm saying it uh, in the way that international audiences will understand, not Toronto. Um, why do you think that this, uh, found root in Canada first? What is there something special about Canada that makes that, uh, bloom here first? Yeah, absolutely. And, and it is starting to spread more internationally too. We, um, we had a policy paper and with the United Nations, except with the United Nations about texture chip as a foundation for connecting science, technology, and innovation to the sustainable development goals. We're talking with, um, we partnered with some, um, uh, international organizations and we have participants going through the program internationally. Why Canada? I think um, Canada has that pluralistic strength, right? You know, people from all over the world, different backgrounds, different cultures, um, in a way that I think is definitely imperfect. There's been lots of problems in history and continue to be problems. But I would say Canada is, if we look at the roughly 200 countries in the world, in terms of a a country that has embraced different sort of um, um, uh, backgrounds, different cultures, and kind of brought them together in a, in a, in a better way, again, not a perfect way. Uh, I think that that sort of pluralistic sort of uh, foundation and strength is sort of lends itself really well to tech stewardship, where it's like this appreciation of different values and perspectives, and that they all bring sort of strength in how do we actually um, continue to find um, the best, you know, uh, navigate a path forward that's bringing together the best of different traditions and values and perspectives as opposed to like creating a tug of war between them i wonder if the uh, I, I wonder if you'll entertain another theory yeah, yeah. that is and that is that we sit at the fulcrum between the us and the eu that's very true yeah like a can we do it and a should we do it exactly right a regulatory or more or more free market that i think that's absolutely accurate as well too well this has been a delight thank you so much mark yeah, thank you, Tim. This was a, a lot of fun. And yeah, looking forward to, to, to seeing the final product. <laughs> My guest today was Mark Abbott. Mark can be reached at markabbott, double T, at engineeringchangelab.ca. The links we discussed will be in the show notes. <laughs>